Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Delivering in-depth interviews, expeditions and adventures. Be sure to check us out on social media and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is Laura Bingham. Now, Laura is someone who is one half of this power couple that is Laura and Ed Stafford, but she's also done an incredible amount of work, which I'm sure most of you will have heard of. But for those who don't, she traveled a lot when she was younger uh, across so many different countries and found herself in Mexico with the only transport home to the UK as sailing across the Atlantic. So an incredibly interesting introduction to adventure specifically and since then she was bitten by the bug and she has traveled south america solo and she's done the essequibo river from source to sea amongst many other things so i do hope you enjoy this session i remember looking back um going through the editing process just smiling and laughing so much at the anecdotes that she has and um i'll tell you what as well this uh releasing this episode very late and it's uh, at the same time as 28 Summers Podcast has released his episode with her. And I recommend you go and listen to that too, because she's fantastic on there as well. So, yeah, I really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode and Jay's episode on 28 Summers as well. Just a random shout out for him there. But um, let me know what you think. Hope you enjoy the episode. And I will see you in two days time for the beginning of the next set of episode scheduling. So hope you enjoy this. Apologies for the how late it is. And uh, let's just dive straight into it. Laura, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, really good, thank you. It's uh, good to finally speak to you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, glad, glad to finally be here. A couple of rearranges, but we're, we're doing it. It's just so weird because we've already had like a 10 minute conversation before you press. Oh God, more, yeah. <laughs> Someone here, it's like to reintroduce ourselves like it's the first time I've I've just spoken to you. Yeah. <laughs> to speak to you, Chris. It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to dive straight into the, the traveling that you did back back when you were 18 years old. Um, you know, traveling for four years around Europe and Southeast Asia and to yeah. your family in South Africa is an adventure in itself. Yep, you've read my Wikipedia page, well done. Hey, I did it. But looking back, do you think it was sailing across the Atlantic that sparked your desire for more traditional adventure, like cycling South America and the Essequibo River? Um, yeah, so I, I'd say that was sort of like the catalyst or the sort of the main point in all the traveling when I realized I was, when I realized I was capable of more than just traveling, if you know what I mean. So all of the other ones were taking jobs, traveling, like conventional traveling. And then it was when I was living in Mexico, I didn't have enough money for a flight. I then looked at alternative travel to get home. And it was weird. I just got on the, I got on the boat, sailed the Atlantic and got back to England thinking nothing of it. I didn't realize it was a thing. I didn't realize it was like cool or whatever. And it was only when I got back on land that someone went, you did what? And I was like, oh, I feel validated. Oh, I like this feeling. Someone's giving me attention. This is lovely. And being the youngest of four, I've always been a bit more of an attention seeker growing up. So I was like, here we go. I've cracked the market. Constant <laughs> attention all the time. Um, and then after that, there was like a bit of a lull where I was thinking of what to do next. 
And then I just thought, well, oh, that was a good little bit of attention. Oh, let's see if I can one up it and go a bit bigger. Uh, and then I thought I'd cycle South America and then thought, and then Googled it and realized every Tom, Dick and Harry has cycled South America. So I wasn't going to get much attention that way. So I had to have a different spin on it. And then with more researching and Google, love it. Uh, I found this charity called Operation Paraguay. Uh, and then they take in 20 to 25 young girls who don't have enough uh, money to feed themselves or their families don't have enough money to feed them. So then I wondered what it would be like to live without that security because we've always got a plan B or a backup in the UK, I think. Because if um, you don't have enough money, you can go to your parents and ask for 50 quid to get food. If, you, if your parents don't have any money, you can go to the government. There is always like a safety net, even if it's food banks or something. So I've never had to be in a predicament where I didn't have food. And that's what then inspired the Cycling South America with uh, no money to see how difficult it would be. And it's really hard and I'd never want to do it again. And I never would recommend to anyone doing it again because it's it's demoralizing it's like going like begging hand into a shop or asking for scraps from a restaurant or picking food up on the side of the road it's um it's really demoralizing and I felt really really insecure at the end of it I felt very damaged um at the end of that journey and not I I wasn't patting my back or anything or looking for the attention and stuff I've just felt very I felt more of a shell of myself at the end of that one, I think. Yeah, that was, that's weird that you say that because I was about to give with the visualization you'd given. I was just about to, to suggest feeling like a shell of yourself. I mean, you, you said it can make a huge difference when people actually treated you like a human. Yeah. Uh, when, when they when they saw you, when, when you're asking for food or some shelter, when they actually looked at you and even if it was a rejection, when they looked at you and said, like, no, I don't. That was a lot better than just being ignored. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. The It was the... Um, it was when I went to Paraguay and I didn't realize that was a thing. I didn't realize that um, that was the bit that was missing through Ecuador and Peru, that people weren't smiling at me or waving at me. Um, they were completely ignoring me. And it was only when I got to Paraguay that someone um, beeped and I thought, oh God, they're going to tell me to get out the road again because they hated cyclists. Well, we, I think we all kind of hate cyclists on the road. Yeah. But they... Um, <laughs> They beeped and I thought they were going to try and like knock me over like a lot of places did. And he didn't, he just like waved and stuck his thumb out, out the window. And I was like, oh, he saw me. Oh, he was just wanting to say hi. And then that really gave me like a real hit of serotonin or, um, and then I realized that that was the thing that I was missing in all of those countries. Just that, yeah, like you said, recognition of being a human. Um, so now I think, obviously, I think homeless people and, you know, the people that sell the big issues and stuff, they obviously want 50p or a pound or a hot drink or something. But I think more than anything, they just need people to say hello and smile at them and just acknowledge their existence because it's horrid when um, you just get ignored 24-7. You just feel like you're a burden on society. You're a burden to everyone you see and you're better off dead because that's how people kind of are treating you, like you're not even there. And that's with me being a white Westerner in those countries where I'm a sort of a commodity to investigate or smile at because A, I could mean money or B, you know, I'm something new and interesting. So um, yeah, lots of lessons from that one. Yeah, absolutely. 
something I've noticed in my research uh, for this is that when you set your mind to something, you will move heaven and earth to make it happen. So when other people share their views and opinions as they do, how do you balance taking advice with ignoring people placing their limitations on you? I just laugh in their face the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you can control me. <laughs> no. <laughs> My mum said it was when I, just before I sailed the Atlantic, she begged me to get on a flight. And I was like, nope, I've made up my mind. And she said that was the moment that she gave up ever trying to change my mind. Um, I think I think the difference between, obviously everyone's very willing to give you ad their advice regardless of whether you ask for it or not. And I think, I don't know, where, possibly where it's, I actually know, because some people are trying to be helpful. They're trying to be nice but they're trying to warn you of all the terrible things that could happen, um, which then puts you off and you think you can't do it because you're unprepared and ill-prepared. I think, honestly, I tend to just ignore everyone. <laughs> I think I kind of, I know what I want. I do my own research and you, you do hear all of this advice, but I think most of the time I just point blank ignore it. I suppose you've got to weigh up their experience, haven't you? If I gave you jungle advice, please ignore me. Because <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Don't let it get in your head. Like if I say, oh, you can't do that. I know nothing about the jungle. <laughs> but no. whereas, you know, if Ray Mears gave you advice on how to go wild camping, you'd probably take it. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with kind of the birth. Like when I gave birth to the twins, the consultant who has been there at multiple, probably thousands of births, told me not to have a home birth, not to have a water birth, and to probably have a cesarean because everything was going to go wrong. And I went, okay, I won't have a home birth because things statistically probably do go wrong. So I'll have it in the hospital, so it's there, but I'm having a water birth and I'm giving birth in the pool. Um, and he was like, no, no, you should really be on the labor ward. You should be on your back with a drip. And so we can control everything. And literally the whole time I was there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to the point, and then I went, so when I have a water birth, what is the situation with the monitoring? And he'd be like, okay. Um, so when you have a bed birth, you might be, <laughs> literally it, it was this, this tennis racket. And then I kept going, so are we going to talk about a birth plan of how I'm going to give birth in the water? And he was like, let's discuss that next time I see you then, shall we? And then about eight weeks before the birth, I was like, so when I have my water birth and he literally went, right, okay, we're going to have to go to a different room. And he took me off to a different meeting room. And he was like, right, Laura. And like really tried to sit me down. I was like, I really don't think we're seeing eye to eye on this because I'm terrified of being sat on a bed and it's not going to happen. And he went, okay, you need to meet with the head midwife then. And then I met with the head midwife who was really, really lovely. Um, she sat down, went through my birth plan, spoke to me all about the things that could go wrong of which I completely ignored, but nodded my head because I was like, yes, okay, I understand. And it was quite good because this happened a few weeks before the labor. So we could talk about everything that went wrong, could go wrong. And then I could just completely forget it while still having that kind of knowledge in case things did go wrong. Um, and then I literally just put my head forward down to say like just tunnel vision with positive affirmations everywhere. And then I had my nice water birth and exactly the birth that I wanted, natural water birth, pulled me on the bed for the second one, but it was 
the most magical birth that I could have had. And I think that is just ignoring all the negativity, just ignoring anyone that says you can't do it, just completely ignoring them and pretending that they don't exist. <laughs> um, I suppose you could have saved a lot of time if the consultant had just chatted with your mum. <laughs> she just goes, you're not going to go through to her. Every <laughs> time. Um, and I guess that's kind of the same with planning an expedition is that, yes, everyone's got their advice and you've got the professionals that will say, these are your parameters. This is where you'll be safe. And to listen to them, kind of take it on board a little bit in the back of your mind and then completely ignore them because they tend to, the negativity is, it's like COVID. It's got a, it's got a high infection rate. Yeah. Very contagious. Very <laughs> contagious. Uh, and it's very easy to get bogged down by the negativity and all the things that could go wrong. And that's the same with what we did with the Essequibo is that before we went, we went, these are all the things that could go wrong, got all of the advice of all the things that could go wrong, put in strategies, did a risk assessment of all the things that we would do to mitigate those risks. We had an emergency helicopter on call, not 24 seven, because they don't do that. They don't fly at night. Um, and we knew that when we were at the source, we would possibly be, I think it was like 72 or 70 hours or whatever away from being rescued. So nothing could go wrong at the source. Um, we all had first aid training. We all had like a med, like a, we had a medical kit with us. It was very um, extensive. So we planned for all the things that could go wrong. And then once we got there, we completely ignored them, forgot about them, like put them out of our head because we had planned for them. We had emergent, I printed off and laminated emergency contact telephone numbers. Like we all had a, an emergency um, like booklet of what to do in different situations. So we were fully prepared but then to completely knock that out of your mind, forget about it, put it to the very, very back for plan Z of things that could happen. And um, because if, if you like, it's that whole, um, what you, what, what, what do they say? Um, what you focus on, you perpetuate or what's that? There's like a phrase. I don't know the one you're on about, but generally speaking, manifestation, right? Uh, yeah. What you like fixate on, you manifest. That. It's basically like skiing. Like you don't look at where you don't want to go. You look at where you do want to go. Otherwise you're just going to crash into some poor five-year-old making its way down the slope. Yeah, exactly. Or horse riding. If you're looking to the right, the horse is going to go to the right because that's where your body is telling him to exactly. And it's the same with an expedition or something. Um, I think my problem at the moment though, is that after having children, I'm really muddled of where my goal is. Like I've got, so many different little goals all over and I don't know which one to focus on which is really stressing me out and fudging with my identity it's lot. really interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things I was going to ask you was about acceptable risk you know the line of acceptable risk and I listened to a podcast a few years ago where you said you'd found that you, you think you're getting close to it how has having kids changed that I mean for me it's for me it's definitely like lowered what I, what I would consider an, an acceptable risk to do. Yeah, because you don't want to leave someone behind without a parental figure to mould themselves on. Uh, with Ran, I think I was so scared of losing my identity before becoming a mother that it blindsided what I viewed was acceptable risk or not. I was planning on walking the Darien Gap um, before I had Ran, and then because of the uh, Columbia, the FARC 
gorillas sort of reinstating into the jungle and stuff, I then deemed that was too much of a risk because humans are too unpredictable. You can't, you, you know, they'll shoot you, stab you if you look at them funny. Um, so I bogged that one off because that risk was too high. Whereas the Essequibo, it was jaguars, crocodiles, like snakes and stuff. And they're predictable in the sense that if you stay in a, a group, they won't, like jaguars won't attack you because you're en masse. It's just, they, they, will, they don't. Um, crocodiles came and they tend not to attack you and unless they're particularly territorial or you're like being aggressive towards them. We did meet a couple of aggressive ones but Faye was antagonizing. Um, and one of them was just moody. Me and Pip were on the bank and it kept coming up and growling. Like I didn't realize came and growled, but they growl. And it kept coming up and growling. And then we we're like, just sort of throwing rocks kind of in the water so that it would then like be like, oh, what's that and go away. And we were like, this is really weird. It just, it was, it was like, it was on its period. Uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't say that because that's a bit sexist. Um, <laughs> Better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> um and now I've had the girls and I think because of the miscarriage that I had a couple of years ago it's it's completely changed who I am more than anything else in the in my life because I now I don't want to leave them whereas Ryan I was completely fine to leave them at eight months the girls are eight months and I couldn't bear to leave them now because I think I've just it's taught me how fragile life is whereas before I think I was quite flippant with life and thought you know, I've been through so much, nothing's going to harm me or nothing's going to happen because nothing ever has happened. Whereas I think because of the miscarriage, I now realise how fragile life is and how fragile like infancy is. Um, so I think I'm much more risk of it, much more unwilling to accept risk nowadays. I've really, really turned into that cliche mum a little bit now. Although I am fine. Like I do still trip round up when he runs past me. <laughs> oh, it, was it was literally it was like last halloween he ran past me and i put my foot out and he fell over it was grass it was grass yeah not gravel <laughs> no not gravel i wouldn't do it on gravel but on grass it's fine but the worst thing is that he tripped over and turned and looked at me and went oh sorry mummy and got oh. i was like oh i'm so sorry my child he literally thought that he tripped it like god had bumped into me and i'd actually tripped him up poor oh, thing bless him I know, but he's so robust. He's like the most robust little dude ever. <laughs> we were at my sister's having a barbecue in the garden and he went to run into the house, but the door was shut. So he just ran straight into the door, with the glass door, but like bounced back off and just went, oh, and then just walked off again. Like nothing had ever happened. We were like, awkward, no one look. <laughs> like, but it's caught, he'll be fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, I run the rule of you, you got to laugh when they fall over you laugh Oh because then if they are actually in pain they won't laugh back they will cry but yeah. if, if they're not then they will laugh with you and then you have a great time yeah. whereas you, what you don't want to do is go oh my baby I'm so sorry you fell over and like they're absolutely fine but then they're just like milking it like they just sail back from Mexico yeah. they're like here's a bit of attention like, <laughs> yeah uh, but they look to you for a response don't they they look to you to see how they should react to a situation exactly. So if you're like chilled as beans and tripping them over, you're like, get up, child. <laughs> so we were talking about a little bit about this beforehand and you didn't know I had a question on it. So it's kind of interesting to hear what you said. Um, but 
previous guest Jenny Tuff came on and she talked about being able to visualize adventures and that sometimes it's easier to be ignorant to just how difficult it can be. Are there any adventures you've done where if you had known how hard it would be, you wouldn't have done it? Um, I think that's very, very true. And I think that's why I end up planning such extreme adventures or what could be considered relatively extreme adventures because you've got no idea how hard it's going to be. Whereas for the idea for me to cycle from, I cycled from London to Leicester, that was way more terror, terrorizing, terrifying, because I could visualize it. I knew that I'd have to pedal and going out for a bike ride today. I don't want to do that. That seems way too hard. Like it's like, it's, yeah, I think setting challenges that are so big that you can't actually understand how hard it's going to be. And it just seems too in the future too abstract is way easier because you kind of go along with the flow and then suddenly you're in it. And then when you're in it, you can't get out of it because you're there. Like you are in the dugout canoe with the YY and you're like, shit, shit just got real. I've just realized what's happening. I don't want to do this, but then it's too late. It's like jumping in at the deep end. You kind of, you have to just, yeah, go for it. Blinkers down until it's too late. And I did that with the cycling too. Just blinkers down. Didn't know, didn't know, didn't, didn't recognize or acknowledge anything. And then it was only when we're on the bike that I went, this isn't fun. fun." And then also when you do a really, really big adventure, you, it becomes your daily norm. Like I think going for little adventures is really difficult because the adjustment that you have to go through is so extreme. Like going from a nice comfy bed to a kettle with a kettle and heating and everything to then getting really cold, climbing up a mountain to then sleep in a tent for 24 hours to then come back home. is really hard because you're going from complete comfort to complete discomfort to complete comfort. Whereas when you go on an expedition, you go from complete comfort to complete discomfort but then that becomes your norm for a very prolonged period of time. So you learn that that is just your daily routine. That is just what your day entails and you accept it and you just accept it for what it is. And it becomes very easy because that is just your daily standard. And then when you come back and you have all your creature comforts, it's wonderful again, because you've not had them for so long. There's a lot more appreciation and comfort in each stage, I'd say in a, in a larger expedition. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've said before the, the standard thing that everyone knows, which is that if you don't push yourself, you don't grow, basically. Mm. Which trip do you think taught you the most? Oh, damn. Um, ooh, which trip taught me the most? I'd say the Mexico one, just because of the happiness and that shifting how my mind thought of things. Um. I'd say the one that challenged me the most was probably the cycling because that was boring. I do not like cycling. <laughs> I'm with you. And how demoral... I, the only reason that I cycle is because it's quicker than walking. Genuinely, I don't like cycling. Um, and that was so demoralizing that I thought, think that taught me a lot about um, how others have to live and the predicament that others are in. Um but the one that taught me the most practical skills was definitely the Essequibo. So I think 
every journey that one goes on teaches you something very different from another. So I think it's very hard to isolate one as the thing that changed me or taught me the most because they all had their individual lessons along the way, like the Essequibo. That made me realize that being away from brand for two and a half months was a bit too long. It, it made me um, go back to more bulimic um, like eating disorder behaviors because I didn't, I didn't know how to cope with that emotion. There was a lot of emotions sort of bubbling up. Um, and that taught me how important it was for me to be closer to my children or not be away from them um, as long. And Rand's, like I said, just he's an absolute happy chappy. So he wasn't negatively affected at all by it, I'm, I'm sure. Um, he had Ed and Ed and Ran are like the best buddies ever. So I don't think he even <laughs> missed me. I don't think he cared about me at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah, I think each one taught me different things for different reasons, and probably in the right point in my life as well. We all need different lessons at different points in our lives. I think it did. I think each one had something that I needed at that point. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And chatting about the Esquibo River as well, how did that come about? Was that sort of like some sort of crazy Hindu decided to <laughs> decide to go do it? Or was it more thought out process and sort of recruiting people? I showed Ran the film Pocahontas and I wanted to be Pocahontas. <laughs> well, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I originally planned to canoe the Essequibo because I literally just wanted to be Pocahontas with long flowing hair and the tattoo and literally just singing just around the river bend. And I sang that all the time. If you ask any of them, what song did I sing the most? They will say just around the river bend by Pocahontas. Um, <laughs> but I'm not a good singer. Ed says periodically that I'm tone deaf. Um, so unlucky for them because I was really enjoying it uh yeah so then we started learning how to canoe and we all learned how to canoe and then uh David oh, I forgot his last name David he goes on all those sort of goes on loads of kayaking expeditions with Steve Baxter and stuff he's really integrated into the kayaking world he was like why are you canoeing and I was like because I want to be Pocahontas and he was like just try kayaking go on just this, this little bit one time. And then we were like, oh, this is so much easier. Look how far we go. This is so much easier. <laughs> and then um, and then we then changed it to kayaking the Essequibo. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so I wanted to be Pocahontas. I wanted to do a canoeing one. And then Ed very stupidly went, did you know the Essequibo has never been run before? Like, no one's ever really done anything around the Essequibo. And I was like, thank you very much. And goodbye. And just left <laughs> kitchen and then got on the phone to Pip and I was like so um do you fancy a little jolly down a river on a boat that's going to be super cute and we're just going to float down the river for a couple of months and she was like uh I'll think about it yeah that definitely sounds really good fun I'll, I'll google it and then she called me up about half an hour later going Laura it's the jungle there's crocodile like there's caiman there's dangerous poisonous snake. You mentioned none of this. And I was like, yes, but you're interest interested now. So you're probably yeah. going to do it. Then she was like, you haven't said no. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, okay, I will do it. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't even have to ask Ness because Ness is Ness and she just got on board. <laughs> so I was like, you don't have this. Come on. And then that's how we ended up with the, um, the expedition because I wanted to be Pocahontas. Ed had said it had never been run before. And then I suck it in to other girls to do it with me. 
Yeah. Oh, that was it. He literally, he went, it's never been done before. And that he said, because he did, um, he was behind the scenes of Lost Land of the Jaguars. And he said the most stupid thing he could ever say to me, that it was basically a Disney jungle with all of the animals and stuff. And I'm obsessed with Disney, as you can probably tell from Pocahontas. And I was like, Disney? Pocahontas? Real life Disney. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Just a modern day Pocahontas, I guess, with a kayak instead of a canoe. Yeah. Why do you think I've got such long, dark hair? Yeah. <laughs> Specifically for that trip. <laughs> so last question before we do some wrap up ones then, which is in all of your adventure career so far, what is one moment that you would love to relive? In the whole... Uh... Would it be singing just around the river bend? Maybe. Oh, I remember on the Essequibo though, Ness was listening to um, my dad wrote a porno podcast. Okay. Like every every five minutes, you just hear this <laughs> from like down the river. And I'd be like, shut the fuck up. I know you're listening to something really funny, but it's not okay. Literally, I'm going down the river. Like every five minutes. And I le- like ended up hating her laugh. So I was like, I know it's funny, but I can't listen to it. So laugh on your own time. <laughs> Okay, no, so, okay, one moment I would love to relive is um, I became the queen of peeing out of my hammock. So I didn't want to get out of my hammock to wee because obviously there's creepy crawlies all over the floor and I wanted to mitigate risk of not getting bitten. So I sat on the edge of, I'd managed to like wiggle my bum and hoo-ha out of the hammock. <laughs> no one saw this because it would look very weird. And then you'd have to counterbalance your weight with your arms um, and then we, but you had to make sure that there was nothing under your hammock because you would we on it. And I made that mistake one too many times. And like the hammock would slow, like would kind of rock to and forth. So you would hear like a as the hammock's rocking. And then one day Pip was like, oh, it's the most annoying thing getting out of your hammock to we at night. And I was like, oh, my friend, you have not learned the technique yet, have you? So I explained to her the technique and what to do. And that night, this is the moment that I would want to relive, hearing Pip go, oh, shit. And me going, you just pissed in your hammock, didn't you? And she goes, yes. <laughs> Completely mistimed it and just pissed in a hammock in her sleeping night, got her sleeping night, <laughs> covered in urine. And it's like, the jungle is quite a damp place. So it takes a little while for things to actually dry out, especially when you're putting them on the back of a car and going down rapids because it just constantly gets wet again. So it took her a little while to get her sleeping bag dry again. That was a very fun moment. Um, but Pip is, uh, has written a book now that's soon to be published. So hopefully that will have some funnier tidbits in it. Uh, the other one was when Ed was cycling with me in Peru and Obviously cycling, you get really, really tanned, but it's like a real selective tan from, you know, shorts and stuff. So my bum was still really, really white. And I went for a wee behind a shed, but then I thought Ed would really appreciate a sexy white bum dance. So I pulled my shorts down and did like a sexy bum dance thing, like proper twerk and like got really into it. And then as I turned around, I saw Ed laughing, but then I also saw the three Peruvian women on the hill behind him pissing themselves laughing not only had i like given ed a little sexy white bum dance i'd also given three peruvian women a nice sexy one <laughs> lucky them <laughs> i know that instantly come to mind um but, um 
Yeah. Anyway, I've got a couple of wrap, wrap up questions. Okay. The first one is what kind of adventures are high on your list that you are yet to do? So is there an itch that you haven't quite scratched yet? I'm not telling you. Are you going to steal my idea? No. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's a couple that I want to do and think of that that I think of that I've thought of, but it's that really. I've got. I'm in a, I'm in a really weird moment in my life now where my children are still really small. They're still very dependent on me, and I very superficially don't want to lose my social media following. So I really want to do an adventure to not lose my social media following, which is pathetic. And I can see that, but I also don't want to leave them. So I'm in this kind of catch 22 where I kind of want to go off and do something, but I want to stay home with my children at the moment. So I'm really, really split down the middle. Um, And I've got some ideas that are purely uh, superficial ego, chest beating world first things that I want to do to prove how strong I am. Um, And then other things that have a much more um, anthropological uh, aspect to them that are much more giving um, and caring of the world. And there's an organization called IJM International Justice Mission that I went, that I wanted to work with before, but then the miscarriage happened, my confidence got knocked. And that's something that I have just started revisiting with them. And that is um, either doing a human powered journey, highlighting key stories about um, child sex trafficking or uh, domestic abuse. And we're kind of, we're slowly orientating around one idea, mainly around uh, child trafficking to tell stories and highlight uh, issues that are going on. So there's there's like a multiple multitude of things, but then I also really want to have my own business. Um, I'm looking at taking, um, did you know it costs nearly a thousand pounds to have a catering waste removal license? A thousand pounds to go to a pub and pick up their, their food scraps. <laughs> you know? I know, I've just been looking into it because I want to pick up all the catering waste to hot compost to then like use my vegetable patch. And then oh. I looked at the license and it's a thousand pounds. So I was like, damn, I'm going to have to make this into a business because I can't justify spending a thousand pounds just to feed my vegetables. With no return, yeah. So uh, then I thought maybe I could sell the compost, make my money back that way and then have a little bit on the side. But I'm at a real, um, real roundabout at the moment and I don't really know which is the best exit to take. So the real itch is that you've got and, and the, the confusion you've got is uh, obviously parenting will always be there, but either a, a huge focus on parenting for now or go on an adventure for now or become a more of a business owner because you've already got Bingham, Bingham watches, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And like we've got the children's books, like drop that in there. I'm a children's <laughs> author. Please buy my books, Mountain of Dreams, Jungle of Worries. Soon Link in show notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. please buy them because waterstones won't take them at the moment because the sales aren't high enough uh, <laughs> plug um so yeah there's there's a few things that i'm dreaming of but no one goal that i've that is pulling my focus towards which is difficult when i'm so goal focused sort of get i'm like tick 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 and i don't really know which one to focus on next yeah and then lastly, mm-hmm. where can we keep up to date with your adventures? Oh, well, <laughs> you can follow me on social media. Please don't unfollow me because I'm really insecure about it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Laura Bangham at 93. You can follow my 
adventures, which I'm saying very loosely because it now consists of uh, children, vegetable patch, a bit of bees, a bit of branding endorsement to pay the bills, a bit of bit of everything, really. Except for Aldo Kane, who out there in this last year is posting sort of adventurous expedition type what? material. <laughs> no, I love him really. How lovely he is. He's fine. But no, I think he's the only one at the moment that's actually able to go out there and do something, get out there. Um, and huge top trumps to his wife, um, Anna, for giving birth whilst he was in the middle of the ocean. Oh, I know. He, he said it was early, didn't he? He was like, a little bit early, so I'm not quite there. But... <laughs> oh, she is amazing. What yeah. a fantastic woman. Um, but yeah, feel free to follow me. But equally, I won't be offended because it's not really, I'm not in that adventure world as much as I was before. Be patient, <laughs> it will come. Yeah, like we had a really the discovery program that Ed and I did with Ran. There's sort of hopefully more talks of that progressing. Obviously, how the hell are, we would do that with three children like this. It, it, I think that's the weird thing about this career as an adventurer is that there's always 10 different things in the pipeline and one thing may happen or one thing may come off and it's just such a precarious, multitudinal type career. But yeah, follow me on Instagram to stay tuned. Okay. Well, listen, Laura, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It has been a, a total pleasure. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much, oh. so thank you. No. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Chris, and um, it's been a nice chat with you.